0: Hi everyone, I'm Riada Alkyol and this is Dignified Resilience, a podcast on fresh narratives on confronting despair, alleviating distress and forging ahead. In this podcast, we hear from people around the globe at all stages of life and variety of industries and learn how to channel Dignified Resilience to survive, feed the soul to heal and connect with others through inspiring compassionate actions and behavior. At the same time, I aim to grow a global conversation that seeks to better acknowledge different sociocultural perspectives on meaningfully weathering life's adversities and achieving well-being. Here is a noble and humane invitation for surpassing our old selves by learning about and from other people's moving forces and limitations for successfully overcoming affliction and ache. Remember, we have different lives, distinct pathways, cultures, and contexts but we can find common ground in supporting Dignified Resilience anywhere. So let's go then.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dignified Resilience. I'm very honored and privileged that I'll be talking to Jeff Charlet today in um, today's episode of our podcast. Jeff is an award-winning literary journalist, journalist the nationally best-selling author of The Family, Sweet Heaven When I Die, and the Director of Creative Writing in Dartmouth. His work has earned numerous awards, including the National Magazine Award and the Outspoken Award. Today, we will discuss Jeff's new book, um, The Brilliant Darkness, A Book of Strangers. I've had this book for a couple of months now, even before the pandemic, um, you know, and stay-at-home orders came in place. I like the title when um, I saw it out because that's the kind of stuff that I've been into recently myself, both into exploring darkness in its various forms, and then this idea of brilliance um, and that contrast of possibilities. So when I saw it together, the brilliant darkness, I was curious and I was intrigued also by this photo, which I thought was so beautiful on the cover. Um, And I like the book too. So... I'm very excited that um, its author accepted to, you know, come along and talk to me about it today. Um, Shortly, it's a collection, uh, a book about, as a collection of the strangers whose stories Jeff shared or which they shared with him and kind of, as he said, attempting to find narrative together. So um, first, Jeff, thanks for being my guest and welcome to Dignified Resilience. Uh, before we dive in, um, I just want to ask you, how are you uh, today?
2: Uh, I'm healthy today. It's sunny outside, and maybe you just sort of have to take that as as enough. Uh, my family early on, um, for whatever reasons, we had some sickness, and 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 um, I live here in Vermont and uh the local hospital said you need to be tested so we went through cor- like the hard quarantine uh early on and ever since um uh it turned out we were negative we were just sick um uh ever since we've just been living in our isolation and trying to i think at least um trying every day to to adjust our minds toward what is to come to face that darkness, as you put it, to, to um, the, the title of the book, This Brilliant Darkness, um, comes from uh, actually the last line of the book. Um, and it refers to just down the road from where I'm sitting now, there's a, a beautiful field um, that for years now I've been photographing. And I, I oftentimes in the morning or at dusk when there's interesting light and my kids have grown tired of me pulling over on the way home and said, I got to just jump out and take a photograph of the field and thinking about this darkness. And I, uh, you know, I don't use any high tech camera stuff, so it captures what it can. And so sometimes an image is almost all nearly just just darkness. And and I but there's a luminescence to it as well. Um, and that's the. the this brilliant darkness with which I am coming to terms. Um, and I think that actually is a condition that uh, many of us, or maybe all of us now, find ourselves in. Um, we are in a time of great darkness, and um, we have to confront that and, and try and find that brilliance and that illumination within it.
1: Absolutely. I think that um, I was... I mean, the reason why I came to the idea of inviting you on is because I am starting to reread. I actually started rereading this book kind of 10 days ago because honestly, it suits me um, in a way. I think that the way you normalize, I'm thinking, you know, in terms of first the title and the way that you described and um, at the end of the book, exactly, you, you, you um, elaborate on all that. I think a lot of people might benefit from that calming, accepting way that you um, describe it. And um, in the book, You actually write, darkness isn't the absence, darkness isn't the absence of light, it's the presence of ink. Yeah. Stuff from which letters and words and stories are made. Darkness moves, it flows from one letter, from one image to the next. And when you, like you said, I think it spoke to me so much when you said this brilliant darkness with which I'm coming to terms, that, you know, it's there. And then, the sentence, I think it was, I don't necessarily want to shine a light that dispels it. I want to live with it. Yeah, Um, I mean, of course, um, for me, my spiritual grounding helps me or has helped me throughout years to kind of um, normalize that um, situation in uh, in terms of, I mean, not situation, the state of mortality, I think. And then my background from the Balkans, where we've been through so much makes I can't say it makes disasters easier because every disaster is a disaster of its own and darkness has many manifestations as I say um, from wars to you know consequences of pandemics to uh, loss of job loss of loved ones but I think that what like you say in these days with this pandemic just normalizing the state of Inse- uh, insecurity or uncertainty is what um, we need, right? You-
2: I mean, uncertainty and, and also the sort of the certainty of of, of mortality. Um, that, you know, the book began for me in, in a different kind of darkness. Um, uh, it, it starts in 2014 and and my father Uh, I'd had a heart attack, and um, I live in Vermont, he lives in upstate New York, and I would drive back and forth about a three and a half hour drive over over the mountains, there's no straight road, just winding path over the mountains to go and take care of him, and I found myself driving most often at night, um, and um, for all sorts of reasons, practical reasons, but also because uh, I and insomnia that had always been with me had grown stronger. I, you know, I spent many years as an investigative journalist, as a journalist out in the world, collecting stories. And those stories had added up for me. I would always, you know, I'd made the mistake of thinking, you know, you, you move from one story to another. No, they they accumulate. This is like the the smoker who thinks the only cigarette that's hurting him is the one that he's smoking right now. No, it, it, it adds up. And the stories had kind of added up. And it was keeping me awake at night and, and, um, so I would find myself working the night shift, and I started looking around for who else was awake at those strange hours. And you know, there's a whole world of people. Um, uh, I mean, we know uh, uh, cops and nurses and um, warehouse workers and the businesses that stay open 24 hours, and the person who gets the night shift um, and it can be very lonely in that darkness and unless you sort of look around at who else is there with you and and right that's not shining a light on it that's not dispelling it. that's looking around at who else is there with you so and in, 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 I was doing that literally. who else is with me in this night? who else is with me as as I'm sort of looking at the mortality of my father um, and and the sort of the troubled in my in and, and my own mind um but you say uncertainty and, um, you know, that's the one thing that there is no uncertainty about, right? Um, uh, we are going to die. Mortality is a sort of, we come to terms with that. Um, we have to come to terms with that because we're not going to escape that. Uh, my father, when I was a child, I began the book with this, um, uh, would, his favorite Emily Dickinson poem was because I would not stop for death, that stuff, you know, kind of okay. for me. Um, uh, and that's so true and so obvious that it can seem trivial. And yet here we are in a moment now where, um, the United States as a nation and many countries around the world are actually struggling to grasp that essential truth and to grasp it, not as a form of fatalism, but as a call to imagination, right? Yes, we face this mortality is clearer now than ever. So we could either look away and pretend and like, no, we're gonna open our bowling alleys and whatever, or we could say, who else is with us in this darkness? And how do we find solidarity together? Um, and you know, that's what my book was about on the small scale of everyday people. Um, I, I would not have imagined it would suddenly become, uh, in my reading, it feels metaphorical to the moment that we're all in right now.
1: And it feels that, I mean, you discovered Instagram, and you write about it in, in your book, and I think um, a lot of cynics, and you're right, you, you're right, you say social media cynics point out that, um, this is from your book that I'm quoting, are laid on a matrix that Instagram is a form of submission to distant corporate intelligence. True enough, we should not mistake the Instagram square for a public one, but nor should we miss the dignity afforded by the small solidarities of hashtags the solidarity of recognition of seeing one another. I really like how you said social media cynics um, because I think that um, I could I mean I could totally imagine the kind of criticism that could come to this book and it was exactly what I thought it would be and I think that it's my personal opinion is those I think cynics who can't who don't who, who don't Want to accept the offering. And I think that you also explained so nicely and elaborated in the book because you said the pictures I've been trying to take are not the story, right? Of, of, of these people. There are some passages and moments in it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, so, so as you said, the book began with Instagram. Actually, I was sitting. Uh, I was getting ready for a night drive i was in upstate new york i was it was already late and i had to drive home to get my kids and uh as a writer um i've always had this practice of when i get stuck um uh, on a story i'll go to the comic book store and i'll buy some comic books i left comic books as a kid you know i still like graphic novels and so on but i'm not I, I, I buy these in sort of moments of distress. And what I'm looking for is the motion between panels. Here's an image, right? Um, comic books artists call this the gutter, the space between panels. When I can't figure out how to make my sentences flow, I'm looking for that. And I remember sitting there, I'd gone to the comic book store, cause I was exhausted. I had a deadline. I didn't know how to keep going. I thought I'll just buy this comic book and I'll look at it and maybe it'll spur something. And I had signed down to Instagram for the same reason Most of us do friends family that kind of thing and I looked. Oh, these are panels Oh, 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 this is a comic book And when I was a kid. I wanted to be a comic book artist But I can't really draw but I could take pictures and I could write the words and I could set these Things into motion and to me this was already then a great solace and that hashtag I spoke of the sort of who else is on the night shift, you know, the book begins um where i live in in rural vermont the only place it's open late at night if you want to get out of the house and work is a dunkin Donuts. so i'm sitting at the dunkin donuts and i notice this the night clerk and he's wearing this t-shirt with this very baroque skull on it which is not the dunkin donuts uniform and i get to talking to him and Talking about his last day in the job. He hates the job. He's been working this night shift. He has a little tear tattoo under his eye. It's for his child who died. Mm-hmm. And, and we have this surprisingly intimate conversation. And I take his picture and I put it on Instagram. I ask, you know, and I write a little story and I hashtag at night shift. And then I say, who else is awake right now? And you know, this is my first, this is me discovering a hashtag, right? Mm-hmm god there's hundreds of thousands of people there's people now posting right now people with shitty jobs that they don't like there's a whole genre of night shift pictures of warehouse workers who who take selfies of themselves getting high as a kind of way of flipping the bird to bosses that they hate and so on this is their way of seeing each other in the darkness and yes it is mediated by the corporate platform of instagram i am no Champion of Instagram, but let's not be blind to the ways in which Given the constraints we find ways to see one another and I think that's that's what I mean about that. Yeah, I still see it now when people uh, Very knowingly declare The problems with social media um, Yes, yes and yes and there's a the level to which I note that many of those people who knowingly declare these problems are are people who live in cities well, I live in a very rural area. And, you know, before the pandemic, there was days when that social media was the way I got to talk to other people. And now here we are, right? And we're all we're all living in a rural area. And, and in some ways, we're all living in isolation of, of our our homes, or 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 should be at least. I suppose some of us are are rushing out to hair salons and so on. Um and uh I think it's worth remembering then the sort of that, 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 that possibility of recognition. And then it takes work to see one another through all the noise of social media. Yeah, you, you have to work. It's not just going to happen. You have to work and try and recognize one another.
1: Yeah. I think that even without social media, I think making connection through initial conversation or context is just the start. And that's the thing that it takes work and it takes time. Yeah. I think before pandemic, we were always so um, obsessed how, you know with how busy we are and there was never time for this. And that is how that connection and space for it becomes lost. So I think that taking time to meet somebody and also to work, like you say, is valid with technology, social media or not. But I am among that group of people who despite all the, you know, uh, online bullying included and the harassment that can happen, um, depending on the context on the social media really finds the benefit and the possibility to um, connect. And one thing that I, um, one of the many things that I liked in this book is you were talking how, uh, at the end you said, what I hope you see What I have come to see anyway, is just how relative beginnings and endings are, how they too move according to the light. And now here we are in the pandemic where everything and the idea of time is so relative and the idea of beginnings and the idea of endings as well. So I was wondering how do you reflect upon that idea of time right now um, in terms of the beginning and the ending?
2: I mean, the book, uh, the, the book, as you say, it, it, it's comprised of, in some ways, a series of fragments. These are encounters. It's a, the subtitle is a book of strangers. Um, and, you know, we spend longer with some, uh, there's a long central story about uh, Charlie Kunang, a man who was killed by the LAPD. And I go to everyone who knew him and try and rebuild his life. And then some of them, it's just a page. Many of them, it's a snapshot and, and a page um uh, an encounter it's not an attempt to tell the story it's just a story from that moment and um i think uh i think that fragmentation was was very appealing to me um partly aesthetically i i've always just been interested and and came to journalism actually through through writers like james agee who were skeptical of those traditional kind of narrative arcs and the and And implicitly the politics that happens in the story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, uh, the power that's being exerted, here's where this story begins, here's where it ends. I mean, we all know, I mean, it's become a a, a punchline. Um, uh, Sorry. (laughs) Um, uh, It's become a a, a punchline in, in sort of political rhetoric. Remember George W. Bush, mission accomplished, right? The idea that the story ends here. Or Donald Trump the other day saying, we have met the challenge and we have prevailed, right? Watch out for someone who declares an ending. Watch out for someone who declares a beginning. That's not how time works. And the book was, was for me, my attempt to sort of recognize that and live with that and say, oh, these stories, where does this begin? Where does this end? How do we um, also resist that kind of framing um, uh, uh, in writing about this man, Charlie Kuneng, um, who was a uh, was an unarmed black man killed by police, uh, an all too familiar story. Um, he uh, was a houseless man um, on Skid Row in L.A., Cameroonian immigrant, um, pinned to the ground um, by a group of officers. Uh, for um, last words were let me express myself and that enraged one of the cops and pinned him down and they they shot him through the heart um shot him six times and and the killing shot was uh, what's called a contact shot where the muzzles pressed right to the bone um while he was pinned down i mean a horrible horrible murder and as i spent time with his story and i looked at the ways in which the LAPD tried to frame it. And I know I'm getting into the specifics of that, but I think it speaks to the larger question of framing. They pointed out Charlie had been a bank robber. Uh, he had, he had robbed a bank. Uh, it's, a, it's an almost grotesquely comic story. He wanted to be an actor. He came to America to be an actor. He got into Actors Playhouse. How is he going to pay for his acting lessons? Well, he's seen this Robert, De, he loves Robert De Niro and he's seen this Robert De Niro movie Heat and he knows when you need money, what do you do? You pull a big heist. So we got together a couple of other aspiring artists, a guy wanted to do a record label. They studied the movie a long time. They said, okay, we'll rob this bank and that will launch our artistic career. So we'll use that money. And instead it destroyed their lives. Um, but the LAPD said he'd robbed a bank. They said, um, they said he was a drug user. Yes, he was. Um, they said he had a history of some violence. He did. Um, and what this has to do with holding a person, unarmed person down and killing them, I do not know and it's nothing to do it, but it's, it's this idea of inevitability, that this is how that story has to go, and it's, it's what I speak of in the book, as the temptation of tragedy, the temptation of tragedy, it's a powerful temptation, I mean, all of us who love literature know it, is the illusion of inevitability, which itself is this kind of reassuring, after the fact, consolation, that things as they are, whatever the horror is, it was always doomed to be thus, right? That's a narrative frame. Um, that's the knowing frame. Yeah, no, I knew all about it. Oh, oh, so you're upset about Donald Trump, whatever. Well, I knew about America's problems before that. Well, no, it never, it never is inevitable. We both have to simultaneously recognize real loss because Charlie is dead. That's done. He can't come back. It was not inevitable that he died. Um, and I think that's, to me, that I, and I don't mean to keep extrapolating to the moment, but it's how I'm sort of, sort of thinking through this book and the work that I'm doing now, is, is I see this almost sort of daily desire for a narrative arc, right? That's what reopening is. I It allows me to feel sympathy for the reopeners with whom I'm politically not aligned, but I understand it. This is the story they, that when they go to the movies, this is the story they see, this is the story they read over and over. So, okay, a bad thing happened, we went through it, and now it's supposed to be the resolution, you know? The arc, sympathetic character encounters conflict, achieves resolution. History isn't working like that. And they're trying to impose this narrative frame. Um, I do think it'll have disastrous results, um, but I think, we do ourselves no favors by calling these people fools. These people are only embracing the narrative logic with which we tell stories until we start thinking about how else can we tell stories that don't have to have that beginning and end, that fixed frame. Uh, Can we start creating a space in which everyone else can sort of wrestle with, and here's the uncertainty that you spoke of, the deep, deep uncertainty, the ending of this. There won't be an ending to this. There will only be a movement towards something else. Coronavirus may go away. It's not the ending. Uh, And in the same way that coronavirus didn't begin in February or January, or did it begin, you know, when, to begin in 1918, or, or where do you begin it? darkness moves
1: and I mean speaking of one immediate darkness that I um, think of is that there is going to be a big mental illness crisis I think um, not just in the United States of course but everywhere where geography defines and describes kind of the inequalities and inequities whether it's uh, wealth or um, health I mm-hmm. guess so, And and even though WHO, the World Health Organization, a couple of days ago, they warned of a looming mental illness crisis as the result, re, result of the isolation and the fear and the uncertainty and the economic turmoil. And what was interesting to me is that um, Deborah Kestel, the head of the WHO's mental health department, who presented this report, basically she said that um, we could expect urge, uh, actually surge in the severity of mental illness, notably in children and healthcare workers. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, I I thought it was
0: interesting specifically also because
1: I read that you kind of, uh, lately read a lot of dispatches by medical Reddit, which I must say I didn't know existed. So I learned that. I, I
2: learned about it through a friend who's a, a an ambulance driver and, um, really powerful stories of, of these folks um, describing their experiences. And, and I think about that, so there's, so there's two things I, w- I would want to say about that. I think about the, the, the mental health situation of um, frontline workers. And I remember as I, was, as I was doing this, when I was working on this book, I was in a, a period of kind of breakdown which ends and you know here's the spoiler right the book begins with my father's heart attack two years later in the same room in which i learned of his heart attack i write what i believe is the last word of the book i'm like that's it that's the final sentence that's great and i found my way home i found you know i was lost and now i'm bound and i push myself back from my desk and what's this why do i feel so horrible and i had a heart attack right um so uh i i think at that time, I, then I so spent this time struggling with like these stories that I had collected. I had a heart attack at 44. It was a weird age to have a heart attack. Um, they had taken a terrible toll on me and stress. And I said, well, this doesn't make sense. There's, n- there's no, no. I mean, one, I'm not, a, I'm not a war correspondent. I've never been interested in that. I've been in some scary places. Um, the stories that hurt more are not the scary ones. The, the, the sorrowful ones that the person really transmits to you, and that you carry with you. But I said, compare it to any uh, EMT, uh, uh, emergency room nurse, uh, cop, social worker. I've seen nothing. You know, they've all seen more. But. And now, on, on the one hand, we know that those professions do have mental health challenges and addiction challenges and so on. On the other hand, they also do have structures and forms. right? I think of this in the way uh, people who've never done any courtroom reporting and they've only seen trials on TV, imagine this great drama. And then they go to an actual trial and discover it's one of the most boring things in the world. And it's supposed to be boring. right? Drama is not the stuff of justice, in fact. Drama needs to be slow and procedural and so on. So it is normally for healthcare workers, right? You go, you see some, some great distress, you file re- your report, there's paperwork, you contain it in your mind if you can, you do healthy practices. Those con- Containment in all ways is broken now, right? Um, they don't have that, that ability to distance themselves from what they're encountering uh, all the time. Uh, I think of um, a great Instagram account to follow is uh, a former student of mine, uh, Ryan Starheim. Uh, I think it's called Ryanna EMS, and she is an astonishing writer, um, and is working as a, a paramedic right now. Um, and um, and it's thriving in some ways on the sort of the adrenaline of the moment and the feeling certain of the moment. She's very forthright about her mental health issues. She's, she's struggled with them. She's dealt with uh, suicide attempts of her own and so on. She writes about all this and so on. Um, and you see that um, you see that laid bare. But the other thing I want to say, the other thing I want to say is even as we see the surge in mental health problems, I think what's also happening now um, is what's always there is more visible. And I think about this in terms of isolation. I'm, I don't know, this won't work very really but well. I'm gonna hold a picture of, a, uh, of one of the sort of the heroines of the book. This is a woman named Mary Masur. Um And uh, she, uh, at the time was living and I don't know if you can see behind her, that's her bed in a transient motel and it's covered with a grocery. So she carves out a little space for herself amongst her food. Her bathtub is filled with her food she doesn't have a refrigerator, so she puts things between the glass and the screen. And when she wants to thaw frozen food, she does it till it's room temperature and she eats it. And she's been doing this for 40 years. Um, she lives in severe isolation. Uh, she has real mental health issues. Um, and she's there. She's always there. Every town you go through, I live in you know quaint rural Vermont. Uh, uh, down the road, there's a little motel and you might drive by and say, oh, look at that quaint motel, the shady lawn motel. It's the same kind of motel. It's actually a motel filled with those who are houseless, homeless, um, filled with those uh, um, sex offenders who are constrained by law about where they can live, oftentimes end up filling those hotels, which is not a good situation for anybody. I feel like the current moment now is making us hopefully Become aware of how how much struggle there is all around us. You know, right in the beginning of the book, I mentioned the guy with the skull shirt at Dunkin' Donuts. You go, I ended up writing a lot about Dunkin' Donuts night shift workers. Um, and uh, and if you go get a cup of coffee at Dunkin' Donuts, pay attention because my God, you know. Someone just seems like, oh, someone's just got a job and they get to talking to them. Well, where do you live? I live in my car because I only get four hours between shifts. And so I just, I am almost working in this constant slave mill routine. Mental health issues will follow that kind of structure as well too. Um, we can think of the pandemic, the silver lining of the pandemic as, as, as a call to seeing, right? Um, even if we must do so through the mediation of screens.
1: And while we think about these scenarios and visions of the future, I think it's important to not forget those who passed away. And I think COVID fallen as, you know, one of the hashtags that you, I think, started and the way that you also retweet uh, faces of COVID, I believe, is Twitter
2: really. really.
1: Twitter I think those we forget we talk about numbers and we look at the news how many people died and these statistics and I think always about statistics whether it's about how many people died in, in in Bosnia how many people were still found you know here today how many bones were left over and it's like and always it is so crucial that we remember these people had aspirations they had their stories and just to remember them as well I something that i really appreciate uh because we forget and it's thanks to these hashtags or these accounts that um that we forget to be that we are all human in a way right
2: yeah if if if, if you're watching this this podcast and you haven't heard of, of faces of covet this uh, if, Twitter account. If you're not on Twitter, go get yourself on Twitter so that you can follow this, because what they're doing is really making, they're obviously working a lot, making this effort to 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 sweep the whole country for the obituaries. And it's one of the things, I think there was a piece in the Times about this, and, and it was the thing that was troubling me. Why are we not hearing more of the stories, not only of the deaths, right? but of the lives that lost. Because at first, a lot of the obituaries would be, oh, so-and-so was, you know, was a bus driver. Anyway, he got sick on March such and such and such. It was how they died. And that was actually a big thing for me in this book was the story of Charlie Kuning, uh, this this man who was killed by the LAPD. And I remember at the time I was talking to a friend who who writes on these kinds of matters of representation, and he was thinking about Black Lives Matter and how... For so much of the press it seemed the, the only black death mattered right you know you you would know just the thinnest of story like who was Michael Brown really who what were the lives that were lost and I said okay that's what I want to try and do so with Charlie Kunang I said I'm, I will tell you about how he was killed I mean I went and I'm also an investigative reporter I got some leaks from the LAPD to so, I could see the body cams of the killing that they were trying to hide. And, you know, I did all that work and I tell you that, but I want you to know how this person lived. And what we need to see now are these portraits of the lives that are lost, ordinary lives that are lost. I mean, to compare it to 9 11 when, you know, we had those 3,000 some faces that were so powerful. And if you were in New York at the time, you know, and to walk, anywhere and to see everywhere, the pictures of the dead. Mm -hmm. We're visual people. Now we have 85, at least 85, 85, 85,000 confirmed dead and as studies show probably in the United States, more in the vicinity of 100,000 already. And um, uh, many people don't see these pictures. Newspapers run some obituaries, but not many. Um, And we need to see this and and people say, Oh, but that knocks me down. And I kind of feel like, yeah, you, you need to be knocked down. Mm-hmm. And that's that's part of coming to terms. Part of coming to terms with darkness is saying, this hurts. It hurts a lot. The loss is unbearable, but here you are, you're still alive, so you're going to keep bearing it. Pay attention to that verb that we use so casually, bearing, right? We think of speak of bearing witness, right? It's a verb. Witness is something you carry, it's a weight. And you've got to say, all right, I'm gonna carry this. I, I, I see these deaths um, and there's nothing I can do to save that person now, but at least I can carry their memory and that's worth something.
1: As we read myriad articles about how post-COVID age is gonna look like, what's the new normalcy? I think we can't know, one thing that we can know and what we can do is do some self-inspection. Um, which, I mean, if we talk about resets and, you know, global reset, this, the vision, how the world is going to change, well, I always think that it might not change and and that for some people it might stay the same as it is, and that's not a good thing. But uh, if anything, um, and something I think that I'm trying to do with this podcast is to offer these stories and the work of people who do the similar thing as an invitation for self-inspection in terms of what we can do how we can you know acknowledge the realities that we might not have maybe been recognizing around us or you know in terms of the people who are next to you in a line for coffee or not at least i cater to the crowd in the community who like me feel that there is possibility and space for that connection, I think. Uh, I I I you you also write in the acknowledgments of your book how you made that book for your daughter and your son and how that you made it as a way of returning to them from the darkness in which you had been for a while. And I feel that for each of us that Whatever it might be, that bigger sense of meaning and purpose always helps us in those dark times um, and it can be a new sense of purpose that what creates in a global pandemic or kind of the change, or it's something that is an ongoing um, thing based on experiences or work but um how do you think what do you think about this i mean how 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 did your kids help you? As you say, you made it as a way of returning to them from the darkness.
2: I mean, so uh, you know, I said before that uh, I had this second heart attack, uh, or not second heart. Attack. My father had a heart attack, and then I had a heart attack when I two years later, when I thought I was finishing the book and the line that I was writing that I said, and "This is the only time. And this is my seventh book. The only time I've, I've known, like, oh, that's the." That's it. That's the last line of the book. Um, and it's a describing, um, this sounds terrible. Aspiring writers never write about your dreams. Um, but every now and then you do, and I did. And I was writing about the sort of dream that I'd had. And, um, uh, and in the dream, I, I, I sort of stagger home <laughs> after this sort of horrible sort of encounter. And my daughter says to me, you were gone a long time. And I wrote that and I was like, that's it. And that recognition that I had been gone and that I was back, right? Both things were true. There there was a loss, but also this return. Um, So I pushed myself back from the table and I had the heart attack. And um, and I remember uh, lying in in the final chapter of the book, because now I wrote, I write sort of a a post chapter about that. I remember uh lying on the table and, and and uh in the hospital and i remember speaking to the doctor and i said but i i, I you know this drama of the heart attack of you know that you see on tv like oh, and you fall down i mean it does happen not very often um god helped me i watched this Trump second debate with Hillary Clinton while I was having a heart attack, actually. I was plugged up to a machine. I actually could see what my heart was doing and they're pumping drugs in me, but I sort of wanted to know what was happening. Watching it with a nurse who was a Trump supporter, but was saving my life, it's complicated. Um, And uh, um, I remember asking the doctor and I said, all right, but I'm gonna be all right, right? And he says, "Uh, we'll do the best we can. And I said, no, 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 he didn't even he hear the question. I said, I'm going to be all right, right? And he says, we'll do the best we can, right? You know, and that's like, that's that's all he can promise. And I remember thinking, my mother died when I was young. Um, and uh, her goal had been, of a, a, a breast cancer, her goal had been to see my sister and I through high school. And she didn't make it. Uh, I was 16 when she died. And I said, all right, I want to see my kids through high school. Um, so for me, that means living to 59. Right? So that gave me, it gave me a final chapter of the book to write about, like, okay, I need to find the way to do that. Um, uh, I need, that's that's a small solidarity, in some ways, the most intimate solidarity with our own children, right? With those closest with us. But it is a solidarity, and it's a model that you can then take out. I want to be alive so that I can be in community with my children. I want to be alive so that I can be in community with others right? We, we, that's something to live for. You know, I don't want to be alive so that I can, boy, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna make partner at the law firm or something like that, right? You want to be alive so that you can be, that is something to work for. That is work that you can do for and with others. Um, uh, I think all the, you know, that's a lesson that the people, the strangers, the so-called strangers, um, uh, in this book, and I'm not actually a religious believer, but the, I take the stranger from the biblical kind of idea, you know, the stranger, the stranger is the one to whom you owe greatest hospitality, right? Um, they're teaching you that again and again and again, and not because they're all saints. This is not, I got, I got to tell you, someone's saying, oh, it's great. He goes around and he, he encounters people and he discovers the great wonderfulness of everybody. Uh uh-uh, uh uh uh. Mary Mazur, who is the heroine of the book she is um who i showed you that picture of this this woman who is living alone in her in her um um uh, as she likes to put it and i'm just quoting her she says i am one tough bitch um and she is and uh she is um She is a a kind of a scary person for the aid workers who are trying to help her and she can be mean and she had three children taken away from her and she acknowledges that was the right call. Um, And yet she's human. And yet if you can bring yourself to recognize the humanness of this other person, that other person might recognize it in you as well and you can find yourself in community as I was fortunate enough to find myself in community with Mary, uh, you can say, oh, this this is worth living for. Sitting here in this transient motel and Mary's room doesn't smell good. Um, There are maggots in the food. Uh, It's hard to see in that picture. Uh, Sometimes she just wears a plastic bag because that's all she's got. She has one shoe she can't put a shoe over the other foot. It's got a wound. Um, uh, you can be uh, tempted toward the paternalism of, okay, I'm going to go and fix you. And that was actually where that story began. My mistake, I was insomniac at a late night place uh, eating. Mary was wheeling herself down the street. She had some money. She was going to go to a 24 hour Walmart. She wanted to buy a microwave. It was close to Thanksgiving. So she could cook a, a turkey for herself but she was freezing and she was going to freeze to death. And I called an ambulance at the time. The preposition matters a lot. I called an ambulance for her. As she would put it, I called an ambulance on her. She didn't want that ambulance. And part that's also part of that community is recognizing here, how can I help you? Not how can I help myself feel better about you? How can I help you? How can I meet you on those terms? That I think is something to live for. I mean, I hope other people want to live for that.
1: And we do hear stories uh, about, you know, despite all the partisanship even and polarization, there are stories about new communities rising or just the relationships and kind of sparking new things, sparking in terms of connections. And I think that's one of the things that always, um, not always, but very often happens in these uh, post-disaster scenarios, even after natural disasters or throughout the wars as well. I think that human connection um, ends up mattering uh, a lot more and can alleviate a little bit all the stresses that we go through in particular There's moments.
2: There's a good book about that by, uh, you know, the writer Rebecca Solnit.
1: Oh, I read it. I love it. I <laughs> "Yeah, yeah. <laughs> underline it.
2: <laughs> yeah, a community uh, or a paradise built built in hell, yeah. right? And yeah. it's such a powerful book, and it goes right to what we were talking before about the way these sort of narrative frames can trap us. Yeah. And and look, I I, I love the the post apocalypse narrative. I, I, you know, I watched The Walking Dead, and the story, uh, you know, and we can say so like when when disaster strikes, we're all going to tear each other apart, and so on. The worst will come out. Um, and she shows looking at history and these disaster zones again and again. In fact, oftentimes um as she's the paradise the great communities of solidarity and help emerge in these moments that this this that's the temptation of tragedy the inevitability this inevitability of fragmentation that's not inevitable at all um uh, and i i just think that's a, a beautiful book for the moment in terms of uh um thinking um what another writer i like leslie jameson um Uh, in a book called The Recovering that came out in, I think, 2018. Um, And she's writing about creativity and addiction. Uh, She is a sober alcoholic, and she's sort of thinking about, you know, what does it mean to try and keep being creative in a way that there's such a long history of... And I'm familiar with this because before my heart attack, I was lucky enough not to be an alcoholic, but... Mm -hmm only because genetics hadn't caught up with me yet, you know, and I, I did my best. Uh, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and she can't take a drink anymore, she didn't have that. And so she's thinking about uh, uh, 12-step programs, AA communities, right? And the way people share stories in those communities and the way it brings together people who oftentimes would not be friends out mm-hmm. in the world. And she calls it the saving alchemy of community, right? The saving alchemy of community, and I love this phrase. And I, I, I kind of, it's sort of like when people say, "Describe your book." I say, "Well, there's this line from this other book." I kind of, I kind of push the other book. The saving alchemy, because that key word, no alchemy, alchemy. When we take base materials, right? That's what it literally means. We take base materials and we put them together, and somehow, in the juxtaposition, it becomes gold, right? Mm-hmm. It's magic. It's science. Um, the saving alchemy of communities is kind of wonderful because we can recognize the ugliness in, in ourselves, the bitterness in ourselves. But as Rebecca Solent in her book shows us, you bring these things together and somehow there's alchemy and a small person who might be petty and mean becomes glorious and 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 community, um, which is, I think, a hope is available to all of us right now available and visible if we're willing to look.
1: Tito, to all of it. I, I absolutely agree. I think that is, um, I prefer to be in that group, even though I'm pessimist by nature, I'm really consciously have been in the past few months and years, just learning those muscles of conscious conscious hope, um, whether it's through spiritual grounding and spiritual solidification in my personal case, or also learning from facts and realities in these um, situations, either after disasters or war narratives, uh, precisely because of where I come from. That brings me to something that um, I call five sweet questions at the end, which people understand very differently. So feel free to um, respond as you understand. Um, The first one is precisely related to that. Once the current emergency is over, is there something specifically to this period that you would not want to forget, Jeff?
2: Oh, my answer's gonna seem so trivial, but it, I, I, maybe it's not. Um, Go for it. What the, uh, I, I live out in the country, and of course you're working all the time, and I spent much more time where I'm, I'm very fortunate, I can go walking for miles without seeing, fortunate and sad, I can go walking for miles without seeing another soul, but I have the freedom to move around and to go with my kids and to sort of do this, a little bit of work that I've always wanted to do. I, I, I always wanted to know the names of things, the names of trees and plants and just little grasses and so on. And so we spend a lot of time um, learning this and 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 now when i go for a a walk in the woods it's not just like oh look at the trees look at the plants um it feels like that community if if you can speak of it in those terms is 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 greatly expanded um, in this sort of immediate sense and of course those things can call into mind the human as well and and the friendships and the acquaintanceships and so on so I, i i I am grateful for that, and I want to. I want to take that learning the names of things, not learning the names of things to control them, but learning the names of, of of even the smallest little things. When I can't go out and do the work that I love to do, which is to talk to strangers, well, maybe I can go out and learn about this this uh, this beech tree, this poplar tree, um, this sedge grass, and and so on. Um, that, that I hope I'll keep with me. Wow,
1: that's and I, now I'm going to think about. Those things in, in those terms when I go out for a walk as well, but I do appreciate nature in a new way uh, now. Considering that I've always lived in you know cities and concrete, um, nature has you know it, it's 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 very important for yeah, it, mental health and balance as well. So
2: you're talking about social media, and I'll I'll say that the, the part of you know I've always been trying to learn these things. You know, like guidebooks and this, this look like this the drawing social media to the rescue in this case there's an app i feel like i'm an advertiser for it but god my kids and i love it called seek and you just hover it over a plant and because all the other people have been wow. doing it and, and you sort of collectively work to figure out what this thing is uh and to give you know to tell you about the various names of the plant and so on so and it, it's good even if you're in a city because you'll discover uh, what is there to see in a city you know you're passing a uh, hundred different species of, of of life beyond the human, every day, mm. uh, the, the the weeds and a and a crack of the sidewalk. There's more going on there than we can normally see, and I think that illumination of 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 difference and 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 life is is really hopeful. Beyond beyond knowing the names of weeds.
1: Mm. So, which of your personality traits has been the most useful? You think.
2: Not the best trait. Um, uh, Well, probably I suppose uh, my reclusiveness and uh, you know, it's a book of strangers. I go out and I get um, the sort of the saving grace of talking to others. And it's an odd thing as a writer I spent a lot I I, I go, you know, as any journalist, I go and I talk to strangers. And, and with this book, it's not strangers, because I'm in pursuit of a particular story. I'm just like, hey, hi, what's going on? And so on. But the fact of the matter is, I've always done that, because I'm actually kind of structurally a a shy and reclusive person. Um, uh, So that's probably kind of helpful. Now I, I am okay. With long stretches of silence with myself, um, and that reclusiveness is not definitely, definitely not the best quality, but at least it's it sustains me.
1: And yeah, the, and that's why. And there, there's a particular nuance between that the most useful and the best. Yeah, yeah exactly. So we touched upon a little bit about the relativity of the time of time, but um, my next question would be when you have. 30 minutes of free time. How do you pass that time?
2: Oh, I want to have some really great answer. But you know, between I know you have kids too. So there's homeschooling and then and then there's and you know, I'm trying to teach my own students and, and who knows, maybe even do some work of my own. And um, so when I have 30 minutes of free time, I, I sit in contemplation, like no, I, I, I the thing that I like to do most, actually, uh, everyone's got their, I'm interested in the sort of the viewing regimes of people, right? Like what they, because we're all watching not all, but many of us are watching a lot more streaming things, right? 30 minutes, I'm not going to pick up a, a, a novel. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, but I've been watching especially old movies in these like little, little 30 minute blocks. And something I find very comfortable about watching movies from the, the 30s and 40s and 50s um, uh, everybody in them is dead. <laughs> um, this is this is and I, why is that comforting to me? Like I don't want to see a movie with living actors. I, I it is it's it's not exactly escapist because it's a way of sort of thinking about things in a different way. Whatever the movie is, so I mean you know good movies. But I've seen some great ones. I've seen some bad ones. As long as it's old and from another world um, that is uh, as distant from this one as the future I hope to inhabit is from this one, uh, I find it very comforting.
1: That's that's so interesting. I mean, it, it, there's so many articles out there about with the suggestions of which films and which books to read. And then there's, there's so many people who say they cannot focus on reading a book. And I think it's all normal. I, I mean, I think it's absolutely now that whatever works uh, whether it 's reading not it, it I think it's just about finding what works, including the the films that you 're watching I have not honestly I, I have I have envied those people with the lists of things they watched at night. Uh, my husband goes to sleep at nine thirty because he 's tired, and then I use that silence to read or research um and it's Ramadan now, so I like to listen podcasts uh, about it as kind of in silence as well, whatever helps kind of to go um, yeah. strongly to that, to the next day. And that is why at the beginning, actually, I asked, how are you today? Not how are you? Because I think.
2: How are you today? Or- That's right. That's what we should all be asking. It's and then we should carry that. That should be a habit we take out. beyond How are you today? I'm not yeah. talking about in general.
1: Exactly. Because Yesterday I had a bad day. Today I'm better, and that's how I think we have to understand it. So, um, okay. So, two questions left. One is, what skill or craft would you like to master, get better at?
2: I have to admit, there's all you know. There's lots of people like, oh, great! I'm I'm going to use this time. I don't have more time. I have less time now. I've radically, I've suddenly gone from being a college teacher and writer to being a college teacher, writer, first grade teacher and fifth grade teacher. And I'm not, and I have no training for those things. Right. So I have less time and I, you know, people say, oh, all the things I wanted to cook. Are you kidding? We have less time for cooking. Um, uh, I would like to neaten this messy office of mine. (laughs) I mean, uh, a a skill, a skill.
1: Imagine, it's all about imagination right now. Pandemic
2: skill, I'm gonna learn to whittle. I'm gonna, uh, uh, I'm gonna, um, I'm going to, um, I had a friend who, uh, a, a darker frame of mind, although in fact, More social media, actually an interesting community I would recommend is um, to follow Blair Braverman and Quince Mountain on Twitter. And they're both writers and they're also uh, mushers, which is dog sled racers. And they built this incredible community of people who never cared about dog sled racing. But I think where Blair is sort of now Quince is a, a racer too, but Blair was the racer. And people were sort of excited by this woman racer, even though she's not the first one. And then these these right wingers would attack them and talk and call them ugly dogs. So they started to embrace that name and they said, we are the ugly dogs. And and they love dogs. And I have a dog, but I'm not really into dogs. One of the dog racing dogs is, hey Malcolm. We're almost done. <laughs> almost done. Almost done, Malcolm. Sorry. Um, uh, uh, God, he seems so urgent he's like I was like what's wrong you need to cut orange um, uh, um so um anyway so but they are also they're a little bit survivalist and uh uh and and Q said you know you live in a rural area you should have a firearm you should have a shotgun and uh I'm like I wouldn't even know how to use it he says I'll teach you how to use it over zoom uh I haven't taken him up on that I don't want to take them up. I'm going to put that down as a skill. I don't, I'm going to answer your question with a skill. I don't want to learn. Wow. I do not want to learn self-defense.
1: Wow. Well, speaking of friends, the last question is actually related. Are any of your friends completely opposite to you or are most of them similar to you?
2: Oh, I would say a lot of them are, I mean, uh, well, those two, uh, those are two very dear friends, Quince and Blair and... Um, uh, you know, Quince is like, hey, let's next year, you know, there's an, they race the Iditarod, the thousand mile dogs that are race. They said, did you know there's a 300 mile walking Iditarod you can do through the Alaskan wilderness? Wouldn't you want to do that? Like, and I do love nature being out, but I don't like being uncomfortable. Uh-huh. Or, or, or they said, hey, you know, there's a plane that follows the Iditarod to pick up the sick dogs. So would you like, wouldn't you like to go with us and a tiny little plane over the Alaskan wilderness, filled with powerful snapping, sick dogs. No, no, but I love these people uh very much, so yeah, I would say um uh, I think a lot of a lot of good friends are um it, it's interesting to find friends who have deep, deep passions and that you become engaged with and fascinated by, and now I follow dog sled racing a little bit as well even though I don't even want to visit them at their house because they have so many dogs, and I'll jump on you and everything else. And um, uh, uh, I think we all have that. It. And it's worth us recognizing that, right? Because then then, 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 we're, then, we're compelled to sort of, so what are these threads that are bonding us together? It's not, it's not sameness. Um, it's the differences that make things uh, uh, um, that, that make things interesting. I suppose that's a banality, right? Um, uh, it's a banality until you actually notice it in practice in your own friendships.
1: Oh well, um, I've enjoyed this conversation so much, uh, but I, I feel bad for the orange that needs to I be. To no, we all have we all have responsibilities um, as parents as well. Um, so. I mean, Jeff, thank you so much. I really, really, truly enjoyed this conversation. And uh, I've learned so much. I will go on and check those applications as well, both for Seek and the ones that you shared as well. And I encourage- nothing from this
2: but this. Get on Seek, everybody, because when you identify plants, then that's going to help me learn the names too, because the more we make this big database- so that that's all that matters. Forget all the rest of it. Just
1: no, yeah, but that's a, that's a great way. Yeah. So so it's building connection in the community and kind of yeah. trying to find uh, the the benefit from it. So um, and just to remind, beautiful book, the brilliant darkness. Um, is there anything at the end that you would want to share um, in terms of survival techniques or anything? Hope uh, anything that you would want to uh, share with the listeners at the end.
2: Oh, I, th- I think you're, you're you're just embodying them. I, I actually said, what is a, a skill I'd, I'd like to learn? And of course, I'm a journalist. I do ask questions. Um, but I have so much admiration for, for those people who can do podcasts and so on and who can make these sort of, this great proliferation of let's talk to other people stories. Um, uh, so just what you're doing, I think, is the survival skill. Um, and... And I have to remind as a recluse, I have to remind myself, oh right, that that's that's what I do to survive is, is you you ask questions about other people's lives. And...
1: That's very humbling. I, I really truly uh mean that. And I said this before. I um this is coming out of me wanting to connect, but also wanting to hear and present more stories that I wish to hear. Um, in a very um humbling way by listening to others who either want to share their stories themselves um, or people who have researched things and just kind of to be in that team that believes that there is a possibility for that better future. And I think that you said that, and I, I really appreciate that. There's so much darkness, but there is some other vision as well and being reconciled with one does not mean that we don't and can't aspire to working towards the other um
0: okay go peel
1: the orange uh thank you so much and uh to all our listeners stay tuned for more conversations uh with very interesting people from all around the globe